So thank you all for coming to Cock Talk. He has trouble counting change with the with the with the hands thing. Wait, wait, stop. Sorry. Yes, but I don't yeah. think that Dana Carvey's movie um, coming out at that same time was really that big a problem for our country. I still don't know why you're making such a big deal about September 11th, 2001. I mean, I fucking hate you. Well, you know they don't necessarily need to be anathema, but they are definitely on different ends of the spectrum. Oh boy, how? See, I have every, a genetic predisposition every, against redheads, so because yeah, because you are one, right? Yeah, combustion. Yeah, we've yeah. heard it before. Yep. The only time I change the setting so, is when so, I take the okay. uh, hair trimmer down to the nether regions. Like that's the only time. Other than that, it's all just a two. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I just don't How about you all? I'm joking. I use beat. After the four Gospels, what's the next book of the Bible? Acts. Okay. And after that, it's Romans, isn't it? I'm drunk. Um, yeah, Romans. Okay, yeah. Yes. Okay. And if you look at the 15th chapter of Romans, okay, uh, you will find that it actually mentions uh, the ability to arm yourself. That's why it's AR-15. Thank you. Checkmate atheists. And, and anytime there's action in the ring, Scott Hall is taking all the bumps because Kevin Nash kind of sucks as a worker. History of Time. Here we connect. Number two. My name is Ed Blaylock. I'm a world history teacher at California. Uh, currently having to make a drive of a little more than 50 miles each way to go to my classroom to have two or three kids show up on a given class period. Um, and uh, between recording sessions, I was just mentioning to to Damien that I have gotten. Uh, notified of an interview possibility uh, but the the school that would be interviewing me uh, probably will not be able to offer me enough money for me to afford to take the job so I'm kind of right back where I started and on that wonderfully not at all depressing note <laughs> who are you and what have you got going on I'm Damien Harmony I am a Latin teacher here in Northern California uh, and uh, I am still employed uh, continue to be employed, and I'm not looking for any new employment. Uh, and yet, and yet, and it's always and yet. Yes, and yet, uh, I am encouraging my members to save up for a strike because, despite the fact that we had one a few years ago, because our superintendent wouldn't enforce the contract that was legally binding and enact it. Um, he has decided by fiat to state that our current MOU is just outdated and we're going to change things. So I don't think we're striking anytime soon because there's no point in it with 10 days left. Yeah. But the odds of a strike happening sometime next fall, I would be surprised if it didn't happen. So I'm telling people save up um, yeah. and I'll start organizing meal trains, which means I'm right back where I started. Lovely. Mm. Yeah. So, so that's fun. Hey, so uh, last time I kind of ended the story. I ended uh, with the thesis statement, essentially, of what Jerry Lawler said during a match between the New Age Outlaws, who were bad guys turned good guys because the crowd changed their minds, not because they changed their wrestling style. Yeah. And they were wrestling a, a flaccid attempt at having tradition, uh, who were supposed to be bad guys 
who kind of stayed, we don't give a shit about you bad guys. It's yeah. called Go Home Heat. Okay. Um, or or Popcorn Heat. This is, okay. Oh, this is the match where you go get popcorn because this person's out there. Um, but uh, Or Go Away Heat. You, you don't hate them for any other reason than you just wish they would go away. Like, okay. you don't want to see All them right. get their ass kicked. You just don't care. You just, uh, wow. Yeah. Um, that's, that's the worst kind of heat. It's, it's divorce heat, really. <laughs> So, <laughs> I think they ought to. I but, think they ought to adopt that. Term. I, I think so. But they they were called especially with the track record. So many of these guys have with marriage. Oh boy, oh boy. But yeah, they were called the uh, the new Midnight Express, which was right. a new version of an '80s group that was really really good and really really popular. Anyway, during that match, uh, which happened the same night that McFoley got thrown off of, then climbed back up and then thrown through the Hell in the Cell structure. Um, whew, man. So okay. So but the, the, yeah. The the okay. The ring is elevated up off the floor. About six feet. No, no, feet? no. That's let's see. The ring apron guys are pretty much up to their waist, maybe a little up to the middle of their back. So okay, roughly four, three and a half, four feet. Okay, four. So it's four feet. Four to feet. The mat. Yeah. Then from the mat, mm -hmm. the Hell in a Cell structure was how many feet? Mm. The top of the Hell in a Cell structure was 16 feet in the air. Okay. 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 Yeah. So it's just... Okay. Yeah. So now it's 12, grown. It's so grown. 12, 12 but feet yeah. from, from the ring. From the top of the... Yeah. From the... Okay. Yeah. From the surface of the ring. Yeah. And then... So he, he, he got flung or he fell or... I would what? say hurled. 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 Okay. He got he got hurled. hurled. Yeah. Sixteen feet. Yes. What broke his fall? The Spanish announcing table, as is tradition. <laughs> and okay. And because at that time, remember the the barricades were basically just steel bike racks. Yeah. Uh, that was better for him because half of his body ended up sliding under that, whereas if they had a solid barrier. It would have snapped his back in half because he would have just folded up backward. Oh, my God. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. And he separated his shoulder in that fall. And then with the what? separated shoulder, he hauled his 289-pound body back up. He had to get off a stretcher first, by the way. Okay. And by the way, to get the stretcher in, they had to lift the hell in the cell. And the Undertaker was still on top of that. So then they get so the stretcher out. And then they start lowering it, and, and Mick Foley's like, no, nah, I got more gas in the tank. So he gets up off the fucking stretcher, and legit, not kayfabe, people are trying to stop him. And he climbs back up with a separated shoulder. Now, by the time he gets back up there, he is so exhausted that he, the Undertaker does a good job of reading the room and realizes, oh, I'm going to have to carry this part of the match. So he starts walloping him with a chair. Okay. Like you do. Which, which... I mean, yeah. being that both of these guys are clearly experts at what they do, yes, you can wallop, yeah. in air quotes, a guy with a chair in a way that looks like you're about to murder him. Yeah, well, I mean, he's hitting him on the flat of the back, Okay, but that's still raising welts. I mean, okay. you're still smashing yeah, well, a guy yeah. over the back with a steel chair. Okay. So he's doing that. Now, The Undertaker is about 328 pounds at this time, and Mick Foley's 289 pounds at this time. So that's 600 plus pounds on top of a structure that was not made to hold human beings. And as they're walking oh, across it, no. the zip ties are pling, pling, 
opening and you see them just crush through. And so the Undertaker goes to choke slam him, one of his moves, choke slam him through the ring. And uh, I don't know that he meant to actually open up that part of the ring. I, I can't quite tell, honestly. Okay, I don't know if it okay. was rigged. Um, my, my gut says it was not. But he goes to choke slam him. And Mick Foley is so tired that he doesn't. Normally, a wrestler will jump up so that the choke slam looks more impressive. Yeah. Mick Foley had no gas in his legs. And so he just. And that saved his life because normally, if you go up, you go back and you rotate. Well, he would have over-rotated and probably died right there. So instead, he just collapsed backwards. He said it was the worst chokeslam he ever took. <laughs> well, the problem was he was getting chokeslammed. And here's why I don't think he was meant to be chokeslammed through the ring. Uh, he was chokeslammed onto the chair. Okay. Well, the chair and Mick, and, and they had just stood there, and they'd weakened it, and the whole thing collapsed through. And Mick falls and hits the, the ring. The chair smashes him in the face. 12 feet up and that ring does not have that much give no um in fact it's rumored that uh that ring finally got changed to have more give once vince mcmahon started taking bumps on it as part of the storylines <laughs> god damn do something with the springs on yeah that. Yeah. yeah but uh so yeah he gets he gets slammed through that um that smashes one of his few teeth left well, he's got plenty of teeth but smashes another one um, and he inhales it, and it comes out his nose and lands on his uh, mustache. He's a fully bearded fellow, um, and he's out cold. Uh, now, now he's uh, the, the match has kind of stopped again. More yeah. people come out to check on him again, and he kind of crawls to the middle, um, and or to the to the um, what do you call it the the turnbuckles, and he's also bit his lips so much so that there's a clear hole in it. And so he's trying to stick his tongue through that hole because he knows, oh, visually, that would look really cool. But what it looks like instead is that he's just smiling because he's doing this. And it looks like a smile, a bloody-toothed smile with a tooth on his thing. And so Terry Funk, remember Terry Funk? Yeah, he yeah, comes yeah. out to buy Mick some time and takes a choke slam from The Undertaker, who has now come into the ring. Um, and then Undertaker kind of leads Mick through the rest of the match. Uh, Mick at one point gets his gets his shine. He starts to d beat on the Undertaker quite a bit. He uses a chair and all kinds of stuff because who fucking cares about rules? Uh, and then Mick Foley goes and grabs thumbtacks and about a thousand thumbtacks. Galvanized, shiny, looks really good. And he gets, uh, I think, choke slammed and then tombstoned onto the thumbtacks. Wow. And then he finally loses. Okay. So so just just to refresh everybody's memory. Sure. Mick Foley, of course, spent a significant amount of time wrestling Puro Resu. Yep. In in Japan. Yeah. Death matches. Death matches. Yep. And Yep. ECW. And had been in the ECW. Yes. So Oh yes. Okay. So so to him mm -hmm. this was a rough day. Yeah, I mean, he actually said that they needed to make that match the spectacle that it was because he didn't think they were going to have a good match, and that would fool the audience into thinking they saw a good yeah. match. Yeah, well, because it's in so very spectacular. ECW kind of, kind of the violence is the story. Yep. as you said. Yep, two absolutely. Ago. Because it was kind of a cold start of an old feud that had already been settled uh, at least a year before. 
Okay. So it, he's got some some grounding there. Now I don't remember if he brought out the barbed wire uh, baseball bat or not for that one. That might have been a different one. Um, because why not? Yeah. Well, you know, if you're so going, if you're you want to get nuts, let's get nuts. Oh yeah, boy howdy. Yeah. So uh, now the fun thing is later on in that match, Stone Cold Steve Austin uh, has a first blood match with Kane. And uh, whoever bleeds first loses. Yeah. And Mick Foley and Undertaker are supposed to interfere in that match. So Mick goes back out With there. With a separated shoulder. Oh, yeah. You and know, a concussion. I imagine. No doubt. Yeah. Um, so yeah. And, and yeah. And, and he still goes out and interferes in that match. He doesn't remember any of this. There's <laughs> video of it. So he's reconstructed it. But yeah. <laughs> And he's toured with the story of this match, by the way, for years now. And it's so compelling because he is such a down-to-earth guy that, like, well, when he talks about it, it's it's like listening to, I don't know, your favorite uncle talk about, you know, when he worked at a carnival or something. Wow. It's wild. It's it's <laughs> nuts. So, so at that same... Oh God. King of the Ring. Yeah. Uh, Jerry Lawler had said that basically uh, they don't really care if anybody likes them. They're just being themselves, and that's why people do like them, right? So it's no longer about pleasing anybody else. It's about declaring and defining yourself. Finding your bliss. As it were. To get, get kind of hippy dippy. Yeah. About you know? It. But yeah. And, and, but it's in an aggressive in a, and in a very, confrontational. Yeah uh kind of way yeah so so uh that's what i ended it with and i wanted to tell you uh, a quick epilogue here uh in fact i think i i have yeah i think this is kind of the only epilogue uh because i think that last part was a good button on it there's a guy named brian pillman he was a professional wrestler and i think his career and his life story is probably the best encapsulation of the 1990s and its impact on wrestling I think you could personify it and grind it down into one person. It would be Brian Pillman. Uh, by the way, Vice did a thing on him as well. Okay. It's kind of fun that Vice is lining up with all the stuff that I'm noticing. Um, now, his life story is one of hardship, like I said. He was maybe six feet tall and in the 190s of weight, and he ended up playing nose tackle in football. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And I mean college football, and I mean semi-pro football, and I mean pro football. Uh, he worked so hard in football that he ended up making the special team squad for the Cincinnati Bengals. Nice. He was also the last guy cut on the Buffalo Bills. And he'd grown up, here's the wild thing, he'd grown up having dozens and dozens of surgeries to remove polyps from his vocal cords. So there would be weeks and weeks where he just couldn't speak. Wow. And like from childhood on up. And so his voice was always very raspy. And uh, he had trouble expressing himself in some ways. So he ended up in Calgary playing Canadian football. Okay. Uh, and once that career ended, he was already in Calgary. Now, fun thing about Calgary, it's the hometown of the Hart family. Yes. And so the Hart Dungeon and Stampede Wrestling, which was its own territory, is where he goes. So here's a guy with a ton of pluck and a ton of courage. And a ton of, like, I've made it through all this other stuff. And a wealth of old school wrestling training from a dynasty family. Okay. This guy is steeped in tradition. 
Right. Okay. Within a few years, he'd found his way to the NWA and WCW in 1989. Uh, remember, it was NWA slash WCW. Yeah, yeah. And then yeah. He was what you would call the white meat baby face. Uh, and he was known as Flying Brian. So people liked him. He had a good move set. He was exciting. But he didn't really stand out. And he was a good guy because he was a good guy. Okay. So standard white meat baby face. He was a high flyer, uh, at least for the standard back then. Uh, and dude could work. Uh, but ultimately, WCW, as always, uses good people poorly. Um, and despite his having some amazing matches, he never really got out from under uh, the the shadow of shitty creative control. Uh, his matches against Jushin Thunder Liger were amazing. Jushin Thunder Liger was uh, IWGPA. Uh, now, feel free to correct me on that if somebody finds that. Uh, but he was like the light heavyweight champion, uh, basically what a cruiserweight would become. Okay. Um, Jushin Thunder Liger is amazing. Uh, truly good high-flying wrestling and storytelling. Like, both okay. of them were able to do both. But mostly, he was on the lower end of the card. He'd excite the crowd, maybe, but nobody had any faith in him to go further. Uh, and sometimes he'd rise, rise up to the mid-card, but as often as not, he'd end up on the lower part of the card. Now, in 1992, Flying Brian turned heel, and so now he's just Brian Pillman. Uh, and still, he's not getting that much heat since he is so poorly used, right? You turn someone heel, supposedly, when they're a pretty good face, so yeah. that people will hate you more. So it was tepid at best. But in 1993, he was teamed with a very technically sound, but ultimately journeyman wrestler that the booger, bookers, bookers, uh, that the bookers couldn't figure out. Okay, uh, you might have heard of him. His name was Stunning Steve Austin. Oh wow! Okay. Now both dropped their adjectives, so it was no longer Flying Brian Pillman. It was just Brian Pillman, and it was no longer Stunning Steve Austin. It was just Steve Austin, and they became the Hollywood Blondes. Neither man was from Hollywood. They were both blonde. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Steve Austin had flaxen hair, but very thin. Okay. Looked like straw. Okay. Uh, so despite the fact that neither one wanted to be in a tag team, uh, they became actually good partners, and they were really pushing the bar as far as getting heat. They did a good job getting heat uh, when they were given nothing. They took on the Four Horsemen, who at that time were good guys, because tradition, because they've been around so long. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And because the South is just a weird fucking place. <laughs> But after five months, they were broken up because why keep a good thing going? Uh, so because Brian, WCW. Right. Yeah. So Brian goes over to ECW very briefly in 94 before he comes back in 95 to WCW. He has a couple matches there. He comes back to WCW at this point. He's a low-card guy again, but he was ceasing to be a heel, and he was becoming more of a cool heel, a tweener. Yeah. Now, it kind of makes sense. He was dipped in the river ECW, and so he comes yeah, back. Yeah, he comes you back, know. yeah. But he was allied with Arn Anderson. Dipped in the river ECW. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to think about what's in that river. Or what sticks to you. Or, yeah. Yeah. But you, you know that a kayak will be used. Yeah, so. well, yeah. You're going to, yeah. That's the only way to travel down that river. So Arn Anderson and uh, Ric Flair are the core of the Four Horsemen, right? Yeah. Brian Pillman is allied with Arn Anderson, but against Ric Flair. Which is kind of an interesting thing because now you've got an actual match between Flair and Anderson for once. Um, and they're friends, but they're just disagreeing over this one thing. And Anderson believes, you know, he's a good kid and blah, blah, blah. And he just he keeps insulting Flair and all this. 
Also, at the end of 1995, he begins to feud with Kevin Sullivan, who was the actual booker at the time, who was loosely allied with Arn Anderson, but like more like we're both old timers, we're, we're both have a respect for each other. And if you think that's confusing, here comes his loose cannon gimmick at the end of 95 leading into 96. Loose cannon. Now, you know what a loose cannon is. You know your military history better than I do. Well, yeah. So please tell us what a loose cannon is. Well, a loose cannon would be a disaster uh, aboard a ship. Mm -hmm. Um, A a loose cannon is one that's come off of its uh, gun carriage. Mm -hmm. And uh, the moment you fire it instead, well, it's going to propel a cannonball in one direction. But um, you have no way of reliably predicting what it's going to destroy within the very crowded very volatile gun deck of the ship as dangerous Uh, to you as to your enemies yes yeah so brian's gimmick was that he was a loose cannon okay and he was a maniac and he was not able to be controlled by veterans who respected his talent so arn anderson is giving him a lot of leeway but he just can't control this guy and then Brian begins to blur the lines, making up worked shoots. Now, a worked shoot is where you, um, you, you basically go off on someone, okay, about things that are real about them, but you've agreed ahead of time, okay, and you know that you're working. So you're just going to sprinkle a little bit more reality in there. But really, we're blending the lines between the performance and the reality. And so the thing was, his worked shoots were only worked shoots to him. Everybody else thought he was shooting on his promos. He worked the boys, which there's kind of a fraternity backstage. So if you're working the boys, uh, you're kind of, you're not violating kayfabe. You're keeping kayfabe up too much. Okay. Okay. The reason why he was working the boys was because he knew about the dirt sheets, like I talked about in the last episode. And he knew that the, the boys would report his, his antics to the dirt sheets, and then he could bend the reality of wrestling more and leverage himself into making more money. Tactics into strategy. Yes! 1996. Okay. Mid-90s. Now, at no point should we forget that this was an effort of Brian Pillman's to maximize his value, and it's because he had suffered a number of injuries and he had five children. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, so, he's motivated to find a way to bring bring in the cash. And quickly and early because he's not going to last as long at this career as he wanted to, which makes it like the second or third career that he's not going to last as long at it yeah. as he wanted to. <laughs> Incidentally, his home life was an absolute mess. Uh, the, the, the documentary about it does a really good job, but uh, his ex-wife committed suicide. His current wife was mentally unstable and uh, drug addicted. Um, he was drug addicted. There were threats of divorce. There was domestic abuse. So he's a loose cannon more and more. Ugh. The lines are blurring. Yeah. In January of 1996, Pillman goes off script and he grabs Bobby Heenan by the shoulders and neck. Now, this is a problem because Heenan had had neck surgery um, and was very wary of any physicality by this point. And Heenan, on live TV, had a headset on. He said, what the fuck are you doing? And he got up and walked away. He thought Pillman was a maniac, so he worked Bobby Heenan. More importantly, he got Bobby Heenan to swear about something that he had done. So he knew that by rattling Bobby Heenan, 
um, and getting Bobby Heenan to think he's truly nuts, that more people mm-hmm. will think that he's weird. So in this weird carny world, Pillman is convincing the other carnival workers that he really is that nuts. In February of 1996, Pillman had an I Respect You strap match. Okay. It's it's WCW. They're just all about stipulations all the goddamn time. So a strap match is uh, the you you have a 10 to 15 foot strap yeah. um, linking you to the other guy. Yeah. You have to go around the ring and hit all four turnbuckles in sequence to win. And okay. if you do that in an I respect you strap match, then the other guy has to say, I respect you. So he had this match with Kevin Sullivan. <sighs> okay. The other thing is you can use the strap to beat the shit out of people. Well, yeah. Right? I mean, duh. Yeah. Now, what's interesting here is that Arn Anderson is playing the frustrated father figure to Brian's antics the whole time. And this was a match that Arn Anderson, kayfabe, booked him into because Brian's got to learn some respect for the business. Uh, okay. All right. I'm going to have to teach him a hard lesson. That's right. But okay. Get the strap. I mean, talk about Southern justice. Holy shit. Yeah. Okay. So again, yeah. this is February of 1996. Now I would also point out that Brian Pillman was as traditional a wrestler as they came. And yet because of his inability to get anywhere using that tradition, he had to go farther and farther afield. Okay, this this is this makes sense. Yeah. Now Brian had other ideas about this strap match. By the way, he comes out to the Four Horsemen's music. He was, which was interesting. At one point, he was kind of in the Four Horsemen, but then he antagonized Flair, so he wasn't. And and the WCW's use of the Four Horsemen was really, really like slipshod and not very clear. But he comes out to the Four Horsemen's music, and he and Kevin Sullivan—that's the guy he's supposed to have the match with. That's the guy who's the booker. They start brawling before the strap could even be put on them. So in the ring, they're yeah. brawling. They don't brawl outside of the ring. They're brawling in the ring, but they're supposed to put these supposed to put the strap on. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> there's no there's no way to get that phrase. No, you yeah. you've got me pegged. Yeah. Um but well done. Thank you. I'm not even mad. <laughs> not even mad. So uh but uh before they, they are equipped with the strap. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Uh, they start brawling. So they're already breaking the rules in 96. Again, the mid-90s. Yeah. It's getting everywhere. Uh, and uh, they start brawling. The brawl is what wrestlers would refer to as a potato harvest. <laughs> okay. Why? Why, the, why that? <laughs> so if you are wrestling, you're supposed to give a working punch. A working punch looks like it does a lot of damage, but it should be gentle as a breeze. Okay. Not everybody can do that and make it look good, so you can kind of stiffen up your punches to make it look good. You just got to stick around the thick parts of the skull, right? So that's still okay. it can still be a working which punch. Is, which is why we see so many of these guys getting punched in the forehead all the time. Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, and also along the sides of the jaw, because then you can open your hand up at the last second and make a nice slapping sound. It doesn't really hurt much. Now, a working punch, um, in order to, it, it has to look good. In order to look good, sometimes a working punch can be known as snug. Snug means not quite stiff, but it stings. <laughs> okay. 
Stiff means you're hitting me kind of hard. Okay. And you got a receipt coming. A receipt is where I'm going to hit you back and you're going to calm the fuck down. (laughs) This is, wow. Yeah. There's so much. uh, uh, It's carny. Yeah. It's so carny. Yeah. Now, a potato (laughs) is where you hit someone stiff. So potato harvest is where you're just trading. You're punching the shit out of each other. Now, there... <laughs> I love the etymological. Yes, just the the the, the linguistic drift. Yes, of of you yeah, know, yeah snug to, to potato. Stiff. Yeah, you got to get stiff, but yeah, to to potato harvest. Yes. Because it's just potatoes everywhere. Frederick the Great would be proud, you know. <laughs> I, I, and, and, I, and I love picturing yes. guys talking about it to each other. Yeah. Using like yeah yeah listening to the vernacular. It's like thieves can't. In yeah, it really game. is. Like, you it know. really is because if you really think about it, wrestling is thievery. You are pretending to fight. Oh yeah. Well, to get people's job. money. Yeah. yeah. Well, it it is. Carney yes. is thievery the, in that, in yeah. that sense. Yeah. The fan is the mark. Yeah. You're trying to yeah. con him. <laughs> you are pretending that it's con- it's simulated combat made to look real. Unless you're in Japan, it's the other way around. But uh, <laughs> did I ever tell you my... <laughs> I'm, just, I'm sorry. I'm just yeah. It, man. Yeah, it was a total potato harvest. They yeah. They were just wailing on each other. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, okay. which happens? Yeah. Like sometimes wrestlers will agree to work stiff because it's good for the uh, good for the match. Yeah. Sometimes they'll agree to work stiff because they got some shit to work out between each other. Okay. And you know, it, it varying degrees. Now, there's a couple fun stories. One, I, I just occurred to me. Um, I think the the simulated combat made to look real, but Japanese uh, wrestling yeah. is real combat made to look uh, fake. Fake. Uh, I think I got that from Jim Cornette. I think you did. Yeah. And yeah. and did I ever tell you my favorite quote of his? I mean, Jesus Christ, he's got a thousand. I mean, he's 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 from Tennessee. <laughs> so you know he's got or no, he's from Louisville. Sorry. Okay, Kentucky. Uh, Kentucky. And so like uh what was one um they Oh, uh her name was Virginia. Uh they called her a virgin for short, but they didn't call her that for long. Okay. You know, stuff yeah, like that, right? Yeah, that so my favorite one, though, is he was talking about, I think, his uncle. He says, my uncle was one hell of a lawyer. He once got busted in Texas for sodomy, but he talked him down to tailgating. <laughs> like, I don't know that that travels across time very well, but people have to understand that in Texas, sodomy was uh, a crime yeah. until 2002. Chewy. Yeah. All right. So, you know. But, okay, okay. so... Uh, the other story I have about this is, and this is a very common one. Wrestlers tell this about other people all the time. They said yeah. they said it's become apocryphal. It's it's almost mimetic. Um, you're, you'll be wrestling an old timer, and the old timer says, "Hey, why don't you go ahead and hit me with your shoot punch?" And the guy says, "Really? Why?" He says, "Because your working punch is killing me." <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, <laughs> So yes, uh, the the brawl between Brian Pillman and Kevin Sullivan 
And Kevin Sullivan is the booker. I keep pointing this out. So yeah. the guy who knows how contrived it all is because he wrote it down, <laughs> right? Yeah. A lot of people say the most important, the most powerful finisher is the uh, the eraser. Yeah. Because you can erase the guy. In fact, the the name for a booker was sometimes called the pencil. Yeah. Like you just call him the pencil. Yeah. So it's, you know, metonymy. Um, in fact, uh, if you... If you um, if you book somebody into a bad match and or a bad payoff, yeah, uh, it's called you pencil fucked me. <laughs> Which, <laughs> it's just fun. <laughs> okay, so okay. so but he, he he manages to get into a genuine brawl with the booker with, within the confines. Of a match of, that of is a, of a constructed match that is constructed to be brutal as fuck because it's a strap match, and they're they're giving they're, each other potatoes. Actually, yes. Wow. Again, the layers, the revolutions, the sublimations of this. After less than a minute of action, though, which I'm sorry, getting punched in the face for a minute sounds like a long goddamn that, time to that, me. To me, yeah, it repeated but, backing and forthing. Yeah. yeah. So the the. And I think in this particular strap match, it was you didn't have to hit the four corners. You just had to beat the guy so badly that he would uh, he would speak into the mic and say, I respect you. I think that's what it was. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Which means the, the referee had the mic. Okay. After about a minute of action, Brian Pillman chases the ref around the ring and grabs the mic from him eventually. Before they're even strapped up. And he says, I respect you. Booker man. Now, when he did that, he broke kayfabe. Wow. And then he leaves the ring. Pillman had just pulled back a very venerated curtain in February of 1996. And Arn Anderson ends up going out there in his street clothes to do the match. Because you promised this match. So, Arn, get out there. What? Well, you know, talk to Brian after. So now, who's Brian not working? You know? He's working the fans. He's working his opponent, who is the booker. Are we and, sure his last name wasn't Moriarty? Right? Oh, it gets much more Moriarty from there. So from there... Brian Pillman is trying to create more controversy and blur the lines even more. He convinces Eric Bischoff, then the VP and, and the guy. Yeah, in, the yeah. guy you got to talk to. Yeah, he convinces him to fire him for this. If not for this, then close to it. Now, he'd been bargaining with Eric or uh, negotiating with Eric Bischoff for a better contract. And Eric was like, I, I can't justify paying you more to the people above me. I'm sorry. You know, yeah, do something. And then Brian Pillman's like, I'll fucking do something. And then he starts putting on the lines, right? So he says, look, Eric, what you should do is fire me, but like actually draw up termination papers and sign them because then the people in the office will talk to the dirt sheets and then the dirt sheets will report that I've been fired and this loose cannon thing can really take off. So Pillman gets Eric Bischoff to go with him on this now, Eric Bischoff claims that he was in on it the whole time. I I think that Eric Bischoff has a thing about not wanting to look foolish yeah, or okay. like he got worked. But 
uh, he gets Eric Bischoff to actually fire him in real life for a storyline. Right. Real contract, real papers, everything. Yeah. Now, Brian Pillman is getting the reality to back up the fiction. So then he's like, okay, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to go invade ECW. So then he goes and he invades ECW. Brian Pillman invaded ECW. Wow. Remember ECW fans and and ECW? Yeah. Yeah, okay. So Brian Pillman in 1996 is invading ECW. Uh, and, and he, you know, he shows up, you know, and, and they did, this is all contrived, right? Okay. But it looks like a shoot, but it's, it's still a work. Um, but it's a worked shoot, right? Yeah. So he shows up, I think they buy him a ticket and stuff like that. So he has an actual ticket to hold up to the, to the camera and stuff like that. Um, and they, they're like, he shows up on camera and it looks like he wasn't supposed to be there. Um, and, uh, you know, he's starting to make, make trouble, you know, just kind of like how Taz got in there, yeah, and, you yeah, know, Sandman yeah, fears yeah, yeah. Taz, yeah, yeah, yeah. um, same kind of thing. Now he gets in, he gets interviewed by ECW, uh, and so he gets pulled up into the ring. So now he's breaking that magical barrier, right? right? right. Yeah. Uh, and ECW, it's much less a barrier, but it's still symbolic, you know? Um, and, After his first interview, he threatens to take out his penis and micturate on the canvas. Of course, he says, I'm going to take out my Johnson and piss all over this place. Um, and then he starts to unzip and reaches in. Uh, he gets removed by security. Okay. Even the smart fans of ECW were tricked. Because of all the shit that they'd been reading on the dirt sheets, because of all the shit that he'd done in WCW, because he kept blurring the lines so hard, even the smart marks get tricked. So now Brian Pillman is not under contract with any of the three main promotions, which, by the way, ECW is a distant third, but it is the third promotion now. Okay. Tactical becomes strategic, right? But now all three of them are very hungry for him. And because the loose cannon gimmick was getting over, right? So he'd also crashed. Uh, He went to Dave Meltzer. Dave Meltzer is a journalist who writes one of the dirt sheets. A lot of wrestlers uh, don't like him. A lot of wrestlers do like him. Um, He's kind of the Inquirer meets the the Sports Illustrated guy, right? Um, And he gets a lot of inside dirt from a lot of wrestlers. So uh, he was at an insider cable industry event, Brian Meltzer was, and uh, Brian Pillman's like, hey, can I borrow your credentials? He's like, yeah, I'm done with him. So he crashes it, and he completely got one over on Vince McMahon. So Vince McMahon is there advertising for what they're doing and all this, and it's a cable insiders thing, so I, I can't imagine how shitty this is. But uh, Brian Pillman gets up there. He's like, oh, my God, you're Vince McMahon. He shakes his hand and gets a picture with him and stuff like that. So now he's got a picture with Vince McMahon. He risked getting arrested to do this. <laughs> <laughs> completely blurring the lines okay <sighs> now while he's in talks with wwf at this point because vince mcmahon turns to jim ross and uh maybe other people he's like who the hell was that he's like oh it's brian pillman he's really good down in wcw he's like he's fucking crazy he's like you know that makes good tv <laughs> so now he's in talks with wwf but while he's in these talks with WWF, he falls asleep behind the wheel of his Humvee and crashes and has a terrible, terrible crash uh, to the point where they have to fuse his foot into a locked foot position because it is 1996. 
So he's basically walking around on a foot that doesn't hardly bend at all, which means all the wrestling that he was capable of, he's no longer as capable of. And also, he's pretty fucked up from his car crash, uh, which means more drugs, which means, yeah. Oh, no. So that was April of 96. Uh, The resulting accident curtails his style. He comes to the WWF on a guaranteed contract, but as a very damaged person. And, I mean, he's hobbling in on crutches when he first appears. Um, To WWF's credit, to Vince McMahon's credit, he must have smelled enough money to go ahead and go forward with it. Okay. And Vince McMahon's an interesting tale of two cities. Like, on the one hand, he's screwing over his best wrestler ever, Bret Hart in 1997. Um, on the other hand, he's paying people their guaranteed money, even though they're coming to him incredibly damaged. So, uh, Brian Pillman acts as a commentator for a while, which all those polyp removals. Yeah, it's not really his thing. And, but at the same time, he's, he's recovering from his broken ankle. Uh, what he would do is he would um, be on IV fluids and then he'd go work and then he'd come home and he'd get back on the IV fluids. Um, but also he is pushing forward the wild man gimmick, the the loose cannon, cannon gimmick. Now he's transitioning to a wrestling role after uh, he attacked an unruly fan during a TV taping in Detroit of 1996 huh. uh, in June of 96. Now, previously, Brian Pillman, like I said, had been in a tag team with Steve Austin. But by November of 1996, Austin is involved with a very good feud with Bret Hart. Austin was now a nasty heel known as Stone Cold Steve Austin. And Bret Hart was all that was good about wrestling because this was November of 96. And yet, Bret Hart had to deal with this nastiness from Stone Cold Steve Austin. Uh, One of my favorite uh, things uh, with Stone Cold, because he's talking shit on Bret while Bret's away. <clears throat> so there's yeah. a ready-made feud, yeah. right? And by the way, Brett requested this feud. He's like, I want to work with Steve when I come back. Okay. He believed in him that much because Steve could fucking work at this time. It was before his broken neck. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, but he actually said in one interview, he's like, if you put the name, uh, if you put the letter S in front of Hitman, you have my exact opinion of Bret Hart. It's pretty good. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And, uh, and Austin's still kind of finding his level as far as the nastiness goes, but... Um, Steve Austin is a nasty heel. He'll fuck over anybody. He doesn't care. Um, Brian Pillman and Austin had been really good friends, but also Brian Pillman is an ally of Bret Hart's. So in October of 96, to get more heat on himself, Austin brutalizes Brian Pillman and he lays it in snug. Oh, wow. Oh, super stiff. Yeah. But Brian knew and, and, and Brian was like, yeah, this is how it has to be. But he also puts Brian Pillman's broken ankle in between a chair, the folding chair on the foldy part, and oh, stomps no. it. Now, this was a work. Okay. Didn't actually hurt him. Oh, God. But, kayfabe, he broke his ankle. Okay. This buys Pillman more time. Okay. All right. So, yeah, yeah. I'm going to brutalize your face, but you know, I'm going to take care of your ankle, and, and honestly, you're going to get more time off. So now the uh, the uh, angle between Austin and Hart gets a bit sideways from that, and it becomes about Austin's nastiness attacking even his old friends. So this is what's called a heater feud. So it's you take a short break away from your main feud to okay. heat yourself up more, and then you go back into it. Now this le- leads to um, something called uh, now anytime you stomp someone's ankle in a in a chair, it's called pilmanizing. <laughs> 
<clears throat> now this leads to Brian Pillman. Uh, oh, uh, it's called the Pillman's Got a Gun episode. Okay, that's that. That's not good. No wrestling is needed for this. Okay. Austin goes to Pillman's home in Kentucky, which is actually his real home in Kentucky. He goes there, and there's already a TV crew and an interviewer in Pillman's house. Uh, one of my favorite parts about this was that despite Pillman's friends surrounding the, his house, Austin beats them all and then breaks into the house. Wow. Uh, Pillman produces a handgun, points it at Austin, and then the feed gets cut. I was watching this with producer George in our apartment. <laughs> and I was like, it was an unsettling feeling. Now, I'm going to go back in time to when I was about 11 and I lived in Florida. We had three channels on the TV. And it was August. And there was, it looked like a news feed that we were watching. Okay. Um, And they, they were, it was the anchor. And they were talking with a reporter who was in Oman. And he was talking about how Oman has declared war on the United States. And uh, the, the attack is going to happen. And then the the power went out in our house. Now, oh, shit. we didn't have radio. We didn't have anything. And we all legit got War of the Worlds. Wow. For a few uh, for a few hours. Yeah. Yeah. And it was I mean, I remember it very viscerally. My parents might not remember it at all. Um, but I remember very much the sinking feeling of what just happened. Oh, my God. The power went out. Wow. During a timing. Yeah. But during a made for TV movie, it yeah. was, you know, it was yeah. fake. But this kind of had that same feel. Like okay. I had that same sinking feeling. I'm like, I know this is all a work. But like he produced a handgun. <laughs> like again, um, wrestling is supposed to happen in uh what's that called? A wrestling ring. Yeah. You know? Uh not in someone's in house. Marina. Yeah. Not like, hey, by the way, we're a roving reporter and we're following the action here, and and he gets a gun. You were gonna say something. No. Oh, carry okay. On. Uh, so there was talk uh, by the the announcers that maybe they'd heard gunshots or maybe explosions, um, and uh, eventually the feed was restored. And when the feed was restored, uh, Austin was being dragged away, and Pillman was. Uh, yelling, kill that son of a bitch and get out of my fucking way. Both of those made it to live air. Oh, wow. Uh, it's the only storyline WWF has ever actually apologized for. Okay. Which only made it seem more loose canon-y. Yes. Right? Uh, now, Pillman was off TV for a while after that, uh, and uh, Austin went on to feud with Brett... Um, it, the WrestleMania. Yeah. Um, you know, re, re just amazing. Um, he comes back as healed as he's gonna get in May of '97. Okay. okay. Now he had wrestled in the Survivor Series. Uh, or had he wrestled or was he just accompanying them? I forget. But uh, the Hart Foundation wrestled against um Ken Shamrock, I want to say Gold Dust and the uh Road Warriors or maybe instead of Gold Dust it was Ahmed Ahmed Johnson. Anyway, they re wrestled against four pretty solid guys um in Calgary during the WWF in your house Calgary Stampede. Tore the roof off the place. 
Um, it was amazing. And Brian Pillman was a part of that in November of 96. Yeah. Uh, okay. So now, fast forward to May of 97. He comes onto the, the screen. He's still allied with the Heart Foundation, by the way. Uh, but by this point, they turned completely heel. Uh, uh Mostly owing to the turn that happened with Bret Hart at WrestleMania um, with the double turn. Austin as an anti-hero is in full swing and Hart's traditionalism is now fully heel. And Brian Pillman is a part of that. Okay. And he was often referred to as uh, like a sibling to the Hearts, which is wild because there were like 13 of them. Um Wow. Yeah, and if you're in the Hart Foundation, you're supposed to be family. Like Bret Hart, Owen Hart, brothers. Yeah, yeah. Davy Boy Smith, brother-in-law. Jim the Anvil Nightheart, brother-in-law. Got it. Brian Pillman, affiliated with us, can't really say that he's with us, but he's always with us. Okay. But he was like a sibling. He and Owen had a, a pretty good bond. So, <clears throat> traditionalism is fully a heel thing now. <clears throat> Pillman then feuds with the one person who pushed the envelope as much as he had. If not farther, Goldust. Okay. He defeats Goldust in September of 1997, and he got to have one night with Goldust's manager, Marlena. And she was his real wife at the time. Uh, and the reason why this feud even happened was because Brian Pillman, in real life, had actually dated Terry Runnels prior to her dating Dustin. Uh, just the lines keep yeah, yeah yeah so uh after one night he turned her into a his own personal sex pot uh further scandalizing gold dust um and i think they had a evening gown match that was going to be set up i can't quite remember um at the october pay-per-view he was going to wrestle dude love in a heater match keep him relevant but give him a little bit of time away from his primary feud opponent who had previously been mankind well his his primary feud opponent was gold dust at this point um and yeah there was an evening gown match i forget i forget exactly what happened with that one but uh again gender bending yeah um so uh his opponent now is dude love who'd previously been mankind who'd previously been cactus jack who would shortly thereafter turn back into cactus jack and then back into mankind and then somehow become mick foley uh the whole time <laughs> remarkably grounded individual yes who just has yeah. totally embraced the carny nature of oh yeah the whole job oh, in the 1999 battle royal no was it 99 or 98 it was one of them he came out I think it was 98. Yeah. I can't remember. It might have been 99. Anyway, uh, Mick Foley uh, came in as Cactus Jack, got eliminated. No, it was 98 because he was number one. And number two was Terry Funk, okay. Chainsaw Charlie. Yeah, okay. And they brought chairs to the ring. During the Royal Rumble. <laughs> and invited each other to hit each other in the head with the fucking chairs. Like, he wallops the shit out of Terry Funk. And Terry Funk's like... And then and then he bows his head for Terry Funk to hit him upside the head. And it staggers him. And then Terry Funk's like, come on. And he hits him in the head. Eventually, Mick Fol or uh, Cactus Jack gets booted. 
uh, around the 14th or 15th entrant, um, Mankind comes out. <laughs> and then he gets tossed out. And then somewhere in the mid-20s, Dude Love comes out. And his kids told him, damn, Dad, you had three entries and you couldn't win. He's like, have you ever been to a Broadway show? You know how long it takes to change clothes? Like, think of what I did there. Sweaty. So. Anybody with theater experience is like, yeah. 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 So at the October pay-per-view, he's scheduled to wrestle Dude Love. They never really got to that match because Brian died of a heart attack at the age of 35 the night before or the day of. Now, it's not like he wasn't doing drugs at the time, but also he had congenital heart problems galore throughout his family. So the next night on Raw, Vince McMahon interviews Brian's wife on TV, uh, who had been in the process of leaving Brian for another man while still pregnant with we're not sure whose baby it is. For real. For real. Oh. Now, at no time was it ever clear where Brian's pretend madness and personal madness uh, picked up and, and began. Like you couldn't tell exactly where. And that's wrestling in the 90s in the nutshell. You start fairly conventionally, but def- definitely you evolve into something far more dangerous and forever different from what had come before. Here's a second and maybe even more telling epilogue. So he absolutely yeah, personified. Yeah, it. seems definitely like you know, yeah. I totally buy your, yeah. your idea that he's the avatar of this. Exactly. <clears throat> I want to bring up the election of 2000 uh, because it all broke down. Our system clearly did not work. Um, votes weren't counted in the recount. And those who claimed to be traditionalists were seeking power in any way that they could get it including not honoring the tradition of democracy. And those who claimed to be progressive were really just centrists who trusted the institutions to the point of letting the other side get away with cheating, despite winning a popular election. And in early December 2000, the election was decided by a Supreme Court ruling as it effectively stopped the recount in Florida, even though you can count fucking votes. That was December of 2000. In January of 2001, WCW was almost bought by another company. Everything was on the right path to do so, but at the last minute, one of the primary backers of that deal backed out, allowing AOL Time Warner to sell WCW to the WWF for less than what WCW had paid Bret Hart for his annual salary in 1997. Really? They sold AOL Time Warner was taking over Turner. Okay. They sold WCW for $4.2 million to Vince McMahon because he wanted to purchase their entire wrestling library because he figured someday there would be a network of just wrestling. He has since sold that to NBC. The 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 network. Yeah. The oh, network. Really? Yeah, WWE Network does not exist anymore unless you have a VPN from Europe. Um, it's the Peacock now. Oh, wow. And the Peacock has been started like they, they didn't put all the stuff up. And they're like, no, nah, we're going to censor some of this. So, like, there's a lot of history being lost. 
Wow. So Vince McMahon for four point two million dollars bought out bought his competitor. Yeah. From literally. from a corporate conglomerate. Um that was trying to offload it. By the way, uh, he didn't have to pay the um, salaries of the people who didn't come over, um, as I recall. Uh, those weren't his liabilities to keep, but I might be wrong. Now, the guy who found a way to control the chaos, Vince McMahon, in order to monetize the chaos that someone else had started, who went against everything his predecessors had stood for and who claimed to be a part of that same grand tradition, when it suited him, was now in charge of all of it. Yeah, I see the parallel you're drawing there. Yeah. Yeah. So. Cheney. Oh, I was going to say W. <laughs> yeah, well. I'm but, being, yeah. I'm being flip. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Everything that happened afterward would be success or failure based on his abilities. Unless he found a way to spin it otherwise by controlling the media surrounding what he'd inherited and taken in a new direction. Like starting, you know. Yeah. Co-opting a network print. Yeah. There you go. Wow. So you have the personal epilogue, yeah. but then you also have the very political epilogue. Yeah. So. And corporate. Yeah. Epilogue. Yeah. And and the combination of that, uh, you know, say what you will. All right. So there you go. So what have you gleaned? Because um, I'm done uh, with this. I, I got to say... It is it is really eye opening the extent to which all of these guys and gals, but but the the lion's share of the attention and the, mm -hmm. and the money go to the go to the dudes. The the extent to which what they do as part of this performance, mm -hmm. sparkly murder gymnastics is like what other athletes do up to 11. Mm -hmm. They, they... So funny you say that because all the successful wrestlers say that their most, uh, their most successful character is always themselves turned up to 11. Yeah, well, yeah. that makes sense. Because yeah. you know yourself mm -hmm. better than any, you know, manufactured, you know... Uh, yeah garbage truck driver college professor you know whatever whatever job based thing uh, <laughs> uh, McMahon did, I still remember that from yep. a couple of episodes ago but you know um w what I'm talking about is one of one of the most uh powerful stories mm -hmm. that that I've heard about the experience of being a professional athlete is my dad worked for a guy who for some period of time was a quarterback in the NFL. Oh, okay. Uh, when my dad worked with him, it was, you know, 20 plus years after this guy had been in the league. He was an airline pilot at this point, but he had been so badly beaten up oh, I on bet. the gridiron. I bet. That it took him like the, the, when, when dad would go to the airport to go on a trip, mm -hmm. you know, you park in the employee lot and you got to walk a quarter mile. Sure. It would take my dad, I don't know, quarter mile, five minutes. Yeah, five, at, ten at minutes. At a leisurely yeah. pace, five minutes yeah. to walk, you know, from, from his car to, to, you know, catch the catch the shuttle. Mm -hmm. This guy's knees 
were so badly beaten up that he had to spend the same amount of time just getting out of his car mm. and warming himself up. Yep. Once he got up and moving, he he was ambulatory and he was okay. But right. but he had I mean the arthritis he had in his knees from getting knocked around so badly was oh, yeah. just that bad. And so thinking about it as you're as you've been talking about this you know listening to what mick foley had happened to him you know oh, thinking about terry funk's knees yeah by the way i mean you just type in terry's funk's knees on youtube and you will find two or three different uh things talking about how it is bone on bone and he lives in unrelenting pain oh yeah but yeah, yeah. Yeah. And and you know, you you in in passing we mentioned uh Chris Benoit. Yep. Last last episode and yeah. now talking about Pillman. Yep. This episode, you know, no wonder these guys wind up having addiction issues. No wonder these guys wind up having, you know, such drama in their personal lives mm-hmm. outside of the ring with their spouses and their kids and whatever. Look at look at the amount of damage they're suffering, yeah, physically and and mentally. I mean, the level of neurological trauma involved in faking getting the shit beat out of you—it's quite something. Like, yeah. like, I mean, on a psychological level, your adrenal glands don't know that. No, no, he's not really hitting me with a chair, right? You know. Um, well, and also he's really hitting me with the chair. Well, but but yes, yeah, yes. You know the 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 uh, the the comparison that that got made when when my wife and I were going through pre-marriage counseling mm-hmm. for the church. Uh, the 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 pastor who was who was doing that with us talked about uh, when you are threatened, mm-hmm. your body. We evolved in order to deal with leopards. Right, us. right. Your your adrenal gland and your nervous system and your brain, they don't know the difference between the threat of your partner being angry at you mm-hmm. and a leopard. Yeah. You know, yeah. and, and so... You have to kind of do a little CBT to yeah, deal with yeah, that. The, yeah, the, the, the context of, of that conversation was... Sure. So the advice he gave us was don't fight when you're in the car mm. don't fight when you're right about to go to bed mm. don't you know like don't not fight you're gonna have you're to gonna have, have to do argument. it yeah you're gonna have to have to hash it out but for the sake of the long-term health of your relationship don't do this before these times also for your physical safety yeah if you're driving and you're having an adrenal reaction you you know bad bad juju yeah sure but you know but the, the same the same concept has to apply mm-hmm. to the amount of psychological strain you know you, t- you talk about uh, uh Hart and uh michaels mm-hmm. getting into a fight in the bathroom yeah like just think about in any other industry in yep. any other kind of workplace like I've had significant disagreements with my coworkers. Mm-hmm. Like I have been legitimately pissed off. Sure. At my coworkers. I have never been driven to the point 
of physical contact. And I don't think it's just because these guys are physical athlete type people. I, right. I'm going to say, I, I genuinely think there's, there's a level of trauma and, and, you know, constant fight or flight reaction that's involved sure. in that kind of thing. Well, and also the stakes are really high. The ego is there and it is a zero sum game on some levels, you know, okay, yeah. um, you know, your ability to feed your family is based on the reputation that you can build in the ring, uh, with the audience and that includes winning at times and you want to win and you know even though it's contrived you want to win uh i i have a friend who actually got into a fight with a guy at work okay um well, I, I yeah you I know and too, and you know. uh you know it, it, i think also you know i didn't get in any fights when i was young you know and so it's not in any way normalized for me uh to fight much uh you know i did kung fu and i just yeah, like that but again yeah. there are rules you know yeah um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I think that there's, um, you know, different, different folks get wired differently. Yeah. Um, but I would also say that, you know, you, you brought up, um, Chris Benoit. Um, I think the early two thousands was paying in blood for the excesses of the eighties and nineties. Okay. Um, and I don't know that it's any different than it had been in the 70s. I, I really should take a look at what stars died in the 70s and when they wrestled. Um, you know, and take into account the, the inflation of life expectancy now because we have better medicine. But, for instance, Bret Hart, he gets injured in the ring by Bill Goldberg and his career's over. Okay. Gets kicked in the head and uh, basically separates uh, all of his neck muscles in his head. And he's massive concussion. Oh, gee. Okay. Yeah, because Bill be... Goldberg was poorly trained and uh, pushed too hard too fast and didn't understand how to work. Okay. So, Mr. Intensity, too snug. Okay. Um, hey. Yeah, and, and regularly people would be like, God damn, do I owe you money? Like... <laughs> <laughs> but i mean you know that's yeah. that was but it looked great on tv right you know so uh bret hart his career ended there um he had a stroke the next year and it's it's damaged him in in a lot of ways uh obviously and and ways that he's never fully recovered um but uh more importantly he's also the only remaining member from the uh the hart foundation Pillman died at 35. Uh, Owen died in 99 from an accident um, over the ring. Uh, Jim Neidhart was the most recent one to die. Uh, the British Bulldog died of an overdose in the mid-2000s. So many wrestlers that were great in uh, the, uh, the, the 80s and 90s yeah. died of overdoses and or <laughs> heart attacks in the 2000s. Um, so I think that there's a life shortening uh, that happens uh, in in wrestling because of the constant grind. Yeah, they're working 300 days a year um, at a very physical thing where they're falling, and and they talk about something called your bump card. That thing will get filled someday. Mm. You will not need. To, you mm -hmm. will not be able to take another bump. Uh, you just won't. Uh, and you know there there's. You know, there's no real, you know, the, the thing they say quite often is it's not how much you make, it's how much you save. 
Yeah. Um, and a lot of them don't have good financial planning. It's like any other sport, you yeah. know, when it comes to that. But um, so, yes, you do have the traumatizing uh, effect of their job. Absolutely. Um, but also you have the lifestyle of their job and the self-medication that comes with that and the physical hazards of their job. Yeah. Even if you're being completely safe, it, running into the ropes, those ropes are still cables. Mm. That shit hurts, you know? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, when you take a flat back bump, it's still, you're still hitting, Yeah. you know, and, and then you increase that from where you are. Or, you know, some of the moves that Brett used to do, he'd land on his knees. He'd make it look like he punched the shit out of a guy, but he landed on his knees from the second turnbuckle. Ugh. I mean, he's got knee pads on, but I don't care, you know? <laughs> that shit hurts. <laughs> and that's before uh, Vince had... had yeah, yeah, yeah. Had put, put more give in the <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, I know. I, I love that anecdote, by yeah. the way. <laughs> Once the boss realizes it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think all those things are also true uh, for that, so... Uh, yeah, and I think in many ways, politically, the 2000s were us paying for the sins and the excesses of the 80s and 90s. Yeah, I can see that. So, you know, the yeah. bill comes due, and unfortunately, it's young men who pay the price. So, by the yeah. way, uh, Chris Benoit, uh, his, you know, there, there was a wrestler named uh, Chris Nowinski who got a concussion and never got cleared again. And he was a Harvard graduate, so he was actually a smart fella. Um, that and he played on that to be in you know yeah. in wrestling. He was a heel, of course, because he's educated. Um, <laughs> but he uh, he he started studying what had happened to his brain. Um, and he started really a lot of the research. It, it ties back to a a trauma doctor in Philly or in Pittsburgh, and it ties back to Chris Nowinski as well. Um, and he started a foundation where they are studying the brains of uh, traumatic brain injury football players and wrestlers and stuff like that. Uh, and so he asked Chris Benoit's dad, can we please have your son's brain so we can study it? And his dad said, yeah, absolutely. Um, and he had lesions on it as though he had Alzheimer's um, and it was an 80-year-old uh, Alzheimer's patient. And that's not to excuse what he did in any way, shape, or form, but yeah. he did have a move where he would jump off the top rope and headbutt you while you're on the on the mat. Mm. So he would still land on your shoulder. Yeah. But his body weight is still falling at, I can't do physics, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're rattling your fucking yeah. brain, and like you watch him, and he's not just selling. That shit is clearly hurting him. He's doing that for the thing. He was also one of the few wrestlers who was willing to take a back-of-the-head chair bump. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, he didn't do it often, but, like, you know, if, if the story called for it, he was okay with it. Um, and he took that move, the the swan dive headbutt, from Harley Race. Uh, Harley Race did it, and he um, he ended up with all kinds of neurological troubles, too, like, and and also no he took it I'm sorry not from Harley Race Harley Race did it and had all kinds of neck issues. Okay. Um Dynamite Kid did it and he had he ended up in a wheelchair. And Dynamite Kid gave his boots to Chris Benoit. Oh. And you know Chris Benoit idolized the Dynamite Kid and, and the way he worked. I mean that's that's a whole other kettle of fish. Um but yeah it's 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 
It's real sad what happened because of the 80s and 90s, specifically the shifts in the 90s and how that impacted the 2000s. So, yeah, no one can believe that. That's true musically, that's true (laughs) politically, and that's that's definitely true in wrestling. So, all right, well, that was depressing. A little bit. I can't wait for Dune, where I'm sure it's just cheerful as fuck. People playing in, you know, midnight it'll be a lot more abstract. Okay, well, it'll be a lot more abstract. Yeah, this was pretty visceral. This, literally, (laughs) uh, you know, talking about ECW was quite literally visceral. Good God, (laughs) I'm amazed there weren't people disemboweled and some of the crap they were doing. Yeah, uh, yeah. Did you ever look up the mass transit incident? I did. I'm sorry. Sweet (laughs) Jiminy Crickets. You're the dad screaming in the background. I didn't watch video. Oh, okay. I okay. I didn't fall for the schmuck bait quite that okay. hard. All right. Um, I knew I knew well enough. You know what? No, I, I don't want to. Yeah. No video I bad. Sleep. Video yeah. bad. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I Fair. I did I did look up people talking about it. Yes. And and yeah, that's awful. awful. And then and then the kid that it happened to uh-huh. wound up um, dying of dying of complications from, from bariatric surgery. Yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, no, um, yeah, so literally visceral uh, yeah. at that point. Yeah, uh, no, Dune is is going to be more akin to our comic book episodes. Cool. So okay. yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with that right now. Right. I'm gonna say the biggest issue I'm having right now is figuring out. Okay, do I want to go through the synopsis of the book first? Or do I want to do the history or do I want to get into themes first? And that because there is literally so much shit going on in this book. Like I remember I've never read it. I, I know. I so, know. And talk, talk to your English teacher friends. Yeah. And see which thing you should explain first about a book that a student has never read. Okay. And then teach me that way. Okay. Yeah. That's good. Good advice. Where can people find you on the social medias? I can be found on social media at Mr. Blaylock on TikTok and Instagram. I had to think for a moment about that. Uh, and then I can be found on uh, Twitter at E.H. Blaylock. And where can people find you if they need to correct some oh, yeah. some detail you've gotten wrong? And I feel like I've gotten a few wrong. Like, uh, I think I compressed a few things and maybe mixed some things around because thematically, yeah. Yeah. But uh, please correct me at Duh Harmony on the Twitter and on the Insta. Don't correct me on Insta. It's pictures of shows that I'm on or my kids doing cute things. But like... Uh, Twitter. Yeah, Twitter, absolutely. Come that's, at him on Twitter. That's what it's for. Yeah. Um, but you can find me there. Uh, It'll be a lot more me. fun if you come at him for this stuff rather than the other shit Oof. people have come at him for Boy, howdy. recently. Anyway, sorry. Go be ahead. more interesting, at least. Yeah. Uh, you could also find me uh, on uh, twitch.tv forward slash capital puns uh, every Tuesday night at 8.30 p.m. Uh, Pacific Standard Time. Or is this Daylight Savings Time? Right now Regardless. it's uh, PDT. PDT. Uh, you could also find me at iMac Puns every Friday at about 4 p.m. PDT. Okay. Uh, and you could find me on the YouTubes uh, at uh, Excelsior Gaming Presents Marvel Strike Force. 99 problems, but a stitcher ain't one. You type in some combination thereof, you'll find us. Okay. It's a lot of fun. Um, yeah. Hey, did you have a book you wanted to recommend or no? 
No, I it okay. it doesn't matter what book I have to recommend. Uh-huh. Good rock reference. Yeah, I like thank it. you. Uh, I'm going to recommend Foley is good. Okay. Uh, Mick Foley has written so many of his own books. Um, and uh, this one is a really good memoir uh, of his experiences uh, in wrestling. Um, if you also, if you're interested in hearing his tale of the um, Hell in the Cell and stuff like that leading up to it, honestly, have a nice day. Uh, a Tale of Blood and Sweat Socks is a really, really good read. <laughs> um, so... <laughs> That's blood, the first one. Blood and sweat socks. That's the That's first great. one. The Foley is good is the second one. Okay. So he's written about three or four. Okay. Uh so I recommend those books. Yeah, I gotta say, after after all of this, mm-hmm. I think I think Mick Foley is probably my favorite one of these guys. Like as an individual. He's easy to I, have as a favorite. I, I don't he I don't know is. enough about the the athletics or or any of that. Sure. But based on just the story of, okay, and so these guys then went and did this thing. Yeah. No, he's like, definitely yeah. a really well-balanced individual. Actually. Yeah. So. so, very cool. Collectively, where can they find us? They can find us collectively at Geek History Time on the Twitter machine. So. Cool. Yeah. Also, obviously, you found us here. So, hit that subscribe button. Tell your friends. Send them an episode that you think they would like. There it's a buffet. You go. Yeah. Send it to them. Uh, it's a lot of fun that way. Um, and yeah, you can, uh, give us a review. That'd be great. Rate, subscribe, uh, give us that five star that you know that we earned. My God, the research that we put into this is a labor of love. So yes, give us a little love back. So, uh, great. Well, for geek history of time, I'm Damien Harmony and I'm Ed Blaylock. And until next time, keep rolling twenties.